Come on up. <clears throat> Welcome, everybody. Good evening. Kia ora. Um, Welcome to another formation, the second of this series. There are some new faces to me. Is anyone here for the first time tonight? Yay, welcome. Um, as Linda may have mentioned to you before, it's not a, your traditional church service this evening, but we're here to unpack some other things theologically and philosophically and, I don't know, conversationally together. Um, so hope you enjoy. Um, tonight... Yes, we have, well, it's a perfect day evening for curry, which we do have this evening afterwards. So please stick around to have some dinner. It's a vegetarian, vegan, gluten-free, friendly Indian curry. <laughs> Happened to whip up this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, it's delicious. It's great food. So stick around. It will just be the usual deal, a koha to help cover the costs. Um, yeah, um, and one important family notice for those of you who do call Edge home, um, coming up on, what is it, 10 days, 25th of July, which is a Wednesday, not this week but next, we've got a family meeting, um, very important family meeting, as most of you probably know, um, at the beginning of the year, uh, we announced that Greg will be stepping back from his senior leadership role and um we're going to relook at how Edge is structured, therefore. So this meeting is just to uncover or ex explain what it's going to look like going forward. But you'll still be around. He's still part. Of, he's still here. <laughs> oh yeah, can't can't go wrong. <laughs> it's not free. It's koha, koha. Um, yes. Anyway, so tonight we are doing a new. Well, the second from the new series called Stairway to Heaven. I was gutted to miss last time on heaven. <laughs> Curious to hear whether it's gold-paved streets or not. Um, and thinking about hell, I'm like, the only thing I can remember as a kid is heaven didn't sound that exciting to me, but hell sounded terrifying. So I was like, I definitely want to go to heaven because I don't want to go to hell. That was, that was where it was. So I'm interested to see how you unpack it tonight. Maybe give a little recap on heaven for those of us who weren't here. <laughs> um, cool. So without further ado, I might just do a little benediction based on our Fakatupu series last year. I'm guessing someone from here wrote this. Um, so you can close your eyes or do whatever you want to do to listen to the words. Um, okay. So this is as we embrace a life in tune with the Spirit. May we come to trust that love is what it means to be alive. May we open our eyes in wonder and so find joy in everyday life. May we discover peace as our guide into stillness. May we grow in patience as we learn to forgive others and ourselves. May we learn to love kindness received and given. May we affirm the goodness of creation and of community. May we receive faithfulness as a gift from God. May we embody gentleness as we uphold the humanness of others. And may we cultivate self-control instead of controlling those around us. In this way, may we experience what it means to truly live. Amen. Okay. Over to you, Frosty. Hey. 
Yeah. <clears throat> it's um it's a funny thing being up in front of people. I suppose when you're not the person up in front of people, it doesn't seem that funny to you because you're used to seeing people up in front of you. But when you're the person up in front of everybody else, it's, it's always a slightly odd thing. Everyone's just looking at you. Deliver the gold. Come on. Um, so, let's get straight into it. And, uh, and as Renee has mentioned, we're in a, a um, series called Stairway to Heaven. Let me adjust that focus. It's a little blurry. Thank you. I'm a doctor. Um, some of you were just preparing. You're like, I really must go to the optometrist. <laughs> um, so we're, we're, we're in a series called Stairway to Heaven. And a couple of weeks ago, we, we looked at a theology of heaven, what it is. And, and I'll do a, a brief recap shortly. Uh, tonight we are talking about uh, hell, and uh, that's a word that has been misused somewhat, so we're going to try and unpack that tonight and see what's really going on with some of that language. In a couple of weeks' time, what we're going to start to do is look at this. There's this idea in the New Testament uh, that has captured the imagination of many a Christian over the last a couple of thousand years, but in particular, um, maybe the last hundred years or so, uh, which is the notion of uh, the Antichrist. And people have been trying to figure out who it is. So in two weeks, we'll tell you. In a way, we will, actually, because what we're going to try and do is unpack um, what's actually going on and the kind of lit- the kind of... Uh, texts that we see in the New Testament that actually use this kind of language and what they're trying to communicate. Um, and maybe it's it's not everything I was told in the 80s anyway, let's say that. And it has direct relevance for our life here and now, not just some wild theory about what might happen out there sometime in the future. Uh, and then a couple of weeks after that, again, when I was young, um, the idea of rapture was this terrifying idea where everybody would be whisked away, uh, or all the faithful ones would be, and so you always wake up in the morning and just, you know you're still here, so you hope everybody else is too. Um, but it's kind of it's kind of upside down, it's an upside down way of even looking at what's supposed to be going on in the texts that, that talk about this kind of thing. It's going in the wrong direction, let's say that. So um, I'll explore that and then we're going to finish off with a conversation about where this is kind of heading and what newness looks like as it unfolds now and in the future. Cool? So that's what we're trying to do. Um, tonight then, what the hell? Right. Um, as Renee said before, uh, growing up, hell is an interest, you know, it's, it's a powerful motivator. Anyway, that's that's one thing we could say about uh, traditional notions of hell. It's really good to get people to behave. And uh, it's also really good to fill people with a deep, deep sense of anxiety. <laughs> um, but Christians are pretty good at suppressing that down so that it just festers away underneath the surface rather than being so obvious all the time. Um, I remember, because I grew up very much with this, you know, this notion that I was going to um, 
the aim was to fly away to heaven, which, um, you know, sounded all right. It was it was singing, you know, singing hill songs around the throne forever, I suppose. Um, actually, hill song wasn't even really a thing when I was young, but it was Roncanoli probably. And yeah, um, and young people are like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, you know, there's a lot of singing. Anyway, that's all I knew that went on in heaven and around and around the throne. And they'd tell these things about every time. They, the reason they could sing it forever is every time they went around the throne, they saw something new in God. I was like, well, seems like a lot of times. <laughs> Still seems like a lot of times to me. Um, but then hell was this horrible, you know, I, uh, hell is this horrible idea of, of people burning, tormented for, forever. That seems like a long time. But I was I was I was all all about it, you know. I'd tell my kids, my friends at primary school, all about it. Just don't want to go there. Give them their little gospel tracts to uh, <laughs> save their souls. Um, I remember one day saying, because people sometimes used to say, if God is loving, how could God send people to hell? And I said to my mother, I still remember this. I said, well, if God wasn't loving, we'd all be in hell already, because that's what we deserve, isn't it, Mum? <laughs> And she's like, yeah, that's right. And then I heard her telling someone else on the phone later that day, you know what Michael said to me earlier? And I thought, yeah, he's so right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and that's why we've got issues. <laughs> because um, as you kind of think about it a little more, something there's something deeply problematic, at least about certain versions of this whole idea. If, if the whole point of... Life is to essentially pray the prayer that you need to pray so that you can get to the good place rather than the bad place at the end. Um, But God is a God of love at the same time. So really what we've got is God saying, I love you and I want you to love me too. And I'm inviting you with open arms to come and be with me. And if you don't, I'll punish you forever. (laughs) Um, We'd call that abusive if it was a person. Anyway. That's just, I'm just, you know, we're getting started, yeah? <laughs> Start controversial and then see how we go. Um, so I guess one of the big questions tonight is, do we hold God to a lower standard than we hold each other? All right. So then what's the, alter- you know, if that's, if that's not a satisfactory way of thinking about things, then what do we do with all of the texts in Scripture then, right? They seem to talk about it all the time. And, um, and what do we do with the fact that there is real uh, harm and violence and evil that seems to be done in the world? Does this, none of this matter? Do people just get away with it? Is that what happens? Um, these are all of the questions that find their way to the surface when we start to talk about this kind of uh, topic. How do we deal with the idea that actually there are certain things that we want to see cease in the world? Violence and dehumanisation and all of that kind of stuff. We don't want to see that carry on. Um, the biblical language for that is is judgment, right? That that needs to be named and said, this is not okay. And yet we also hold to this notion of a God who is love and a God who is reconciling and a God who is redemptive. So I kind of want to do two things tonight. Is that cool? Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You raise a good point. Um, in the first half, I want to talk about hell. And then in the second half, I want to talk about what happens after we die. All right. Cool? 
All right. So let's let's remind ourselves just briefly because this helps, I think, uh, of what we talked about last time. And so some of you I know weren't here, and some of you were. We talked a bit about the biblical language of heaven. And uh, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and the heavens is everything that's above ground, really. Uh, and the notion of heaven or God's kingdom uh, is the way things are when they are how God desires them to be, the way things are when God's way of being in the world is being lived out and being embodied. Um, and, and so in the Old Testament, for starters, there's, there's no notion of heaven as being this destination for the saved people. Uh, it was this idea that God's way of being was here. That was the language. And in particular, the temple and the Torah you know, the tabernacle and all, some of those features became places where heaven and earth would meet uh, as symbols of the way things should be and hopefully will be one day everywhere. Um, so then what happens, if, if that's what we're talking about when we talk about heaven and the language of the kingdom of heaven and so on, then what does happen for people when they die? Well, in the Old Testament, they descended into Sheol, which was a ambiguous, blurry idea. The grave the shadowy abode of the dead, which is, I just think, a wonderful phrase. Um, so you see a lot of Old Testament texts where they talk about, um, do, not, do not abandon me to, to the grave, sometimes your translation will say, or do not abandon me to Sheol is, is, is the word that's being used there. And, um, and there's this hope that maybe God will rescue us from Sheol. So they talk about the fact that we die. And, and in the ancient Near East, nations all around them have all sorts of different versions of this kind of abode, this place of, of the dead. Some have full underworld mythologies that are created. Um, but in the Jew, ancient Jewish mind, it was, it was this kind of unknown thing. But the hope was that Yahweh would find a way to rescue us from Sheol in the end. Um, and then there's a looking forward to a God somehow making things right in the world. And so the things we were talking about before, like violence and dehumanisation and all of the ways in which we act to destroy one another in God's creation will somehow be um, brought to an end in the sense that then God will make things right and, will, and the language and the imagery is of new heavens and new earth, of, of, a, of a newness that emerges uh, and ultimately of some kind of resurrection. That's uh, both of humanity and of the cosmos in some kind of way. So that's the language that, say, for example, the Apostle Paul often uses, that somehow everything will be made new. Um, does it ring any bells for those of you who are here? Yes? And so a lot of the language of heaven and the kingdom of heaven and so on is, uh, even in the Lord's Prayer, which we started with last time, was your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This idea that these two are supposed to meet, uh, we, we actually experience and live out this idea of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Uh, in our lives, and so it's legitimate. To, you know, sometimes we might say something like, "Oh, it was just like a taste of heaven." You know, that glass of wine on the porch. Um, I mean, uh, worship meeting at each Kingsland. Uh, but yeah, kind of. I think that's. I think that's actually that's about right. We used to sing this ridiculous song when I was young. Oh, 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 heaven is in my heart. <laughs> I always know you'll be with me on those, Andrew, <laughs> without fail. Um, it was, kind of, and then and then that song got mocked by everybody because like this was terrible theology. And then I got older and I was like, actually, it's, it was, it's probably wasn't as bad as we thought. 
Anyway, so we've got this going on in Scripture. And then we've also got this other language that is emerging as well. And so when we, and there's a number of words in the original text of Scripture that get translated into English in particular as hell, but they're not always the same word. Um, but it's helpful to think about some of these in contrast with this, because in a sense they are, they are flip sides of the, of the same kind of reality. Yeah? And so in some sense, hell is like a kingdom too. Um, if you like, but it's a, it's a different kind of one. All right. You still, you with me? You okay so far? No stones have been thrown, so I think I'm still in. Um, let's, let's start with some biblical language. Let's do that. In particular, let's, uh, let's use this language here. By the time we get to the, so I said in the Old Testament, it's very unclear what they really believe about this place or this state of being of, of Sheol, yeah? the shadowy abode of the dead. Um, the Greek word that's kind of used when you go into the New Testament is the word Hades. And uh, Hades has this whole uh, different, diverse set of interpretations around it, again, in lots of different nations around the world at that time. For, in some places, Hades was actually like a figure. It was a, it was a person. It was a, like a, the god of the dead named Hades, um, as well as being this language for this whole state of, of, of being and, and so on. Um, now, by the time we get to the first century, which is the time of Jesus, one of the ways in which the word Hades would be used would be um, as some kind of uh, representation or symbol of the forces of death that are at work in the world. So there was Hades as this idea of the, the realm of the dead, if you like. But actually over time, and by the time you get to the first century, they use that to say the forces of death are actually at work in the world all around us. And so they would use language, the word, for example, Hades, to refer to that. Does that make sense? Yes? Uh, so Jesus uses the word Hades a couple of times. It's not his most common word. If we look at the words that get translated as hell, Hades is not the most common, but does get used a couple of times. Uh, oh, I said that already, didn't I? Um, and I tell you that you are... So Jesus has this conversation with, this, with his disciples and he says, who do you um, say that I am? And they're like, oh, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet, some say you're John the Baptist. Um, all sorts of different theories. And then Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, right? You are the one we've been waiting for to deliver us and to, and to rescue us. And Jesus says um, that, I tell you that you are Peter. So he changes his name. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it or prevail against it, some, uh, some translations say. So uh, here, Jesus uses the word Hades, Yeah. And Hades is a symbol of the forces of death and violence and destruction that are at work in the world. And so Jesus talks about this idea that there is going to be this community that emerges that follows the way of Jesus or people that, that follow the way of Jesus. And what God is going to be in the business of doing is overcoming everything that's represented by Hades and the forces of death that are at work in the world. Again, you've kind of got the image, the symbol here, the gates of Hades 
Um, some suggest that there's actually there was a place outside of Jerusalem that was actually called the Gates of Hell or the Gates of Hades as well, where all sorts of funky stuff went down. Um, but it's used as the symbol of the fact that what God is interested in doing in the world is overcoming the forces of death and violence that are at work in the world and bringing about liberation and freedom. Yeah? So what this isn't necessarily is just, uh, I'll build my church and then the church are all going to die and they're going to go to Hades and then there's going to be a big battle down there. And um, Although Peter picks up on this idea later on and actually suggests that Jesus does that. All right. Uh, and so the idea here is that even the strongest forces of violence and death in the world cannot resist the emerging kingdom of heaven that's in, in, in the church that is, that is coming in the way of Jesus. Yeah? Okay. Um, now, Paul uh, actually never uses um, any of the words. So Paul writes a bunch of letters that are the earliest Christian texts that we have. So they're, they're written earlier than the Gospels, or at least some of them are. Uh, and Paul doesn't mention the word hell any version of the word hell anywhere in any of his letters, which is an interesting observation to make, right? So he doesn't bring it up at all. What he does say, though, in Colossians, for example, is he talks about you've been brought out of the domain of darkness and into, uh, what is it, um, kingdom of the son he loves, he talks about. So again, there's these like contrasting kingdoms that, that Paul is talking about where uh, the domain of darkness is this kind of, Again, this is not this idea of a place you're going to go when you die, but a way of being in the world that, is, that gives into the violence and the forces of death rather than um, the kingdom of the sun. Yeah? Okay, so this is some of the language we've got going on. Now, we do also have Hades being used sometimes in the first century to refer to some kind of post-death reality. There are all sorts of various versions of this that are flying out there. And as I mentioned before, um, 1 Peter talks about this as well. And 1 Peter, Jesus descends in on Saturday, Holy Saturday. So the, the tradition says, so Jesus is killed on the Friday. And then on Saturday, the way Peter sort of beautifully and mysteriously uh, talks about the story is that Jesus descends into Hades, preaches to everybody, rescues the dead, um, destroys the gates, takes the keys. And... Um, and so the writers of the New Testament are able to say Jesus has conquered sin and death and Jesus has overcome the grave. And so the hopes that we saw in the Old Testament that somehow God would rescue us from Sheol have been fulfilled in the story of Jesus who, who um, overcomes Hades. And in the end, what you find is that Hades is thrown into the lake of fire at the very end of Revelation. So Hades is destroyed. Yeah? You all tracking? It didn't tell me this at Sunday school, tell you what. Um, so Hades, one of the words that Jesus uses. Uh, we also have the word, and this is the word uh, Jesus uses much more often, is the word Gehenna. So this is, uh, this is the word that Jesus uses most often that's translated as hell in your New Testament English texts. And Gehenna was the name of a place. The Valley of Hinnom was named Gehenna. And uh, when you go back into the Old Testament, there was um, a detestable God named Molech. 
I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament and bumped into the practices of the detestable god Molech. Um, but one of the detestable practices that people, uh, that, that the prophets would complain about was the sacrifice of children to this god. In fact, what they would say is that the statues of Molech would be uh, heated up to a high temperature because they were made from some kind of metal-based thing. Uh, and the, the arms of the statue of Molech would be outstretched like this and you would have to go and place your child into the, the arms of the, the burning statue, essentially, of, of Molech. Because that is what the gods demand of you, to keep them happy, to show your level of um, um, passion and commitment to the god Molech. And uh, the way you're supposed to do it is not show any emotion. So if you show any emotion, it, it takes away from the validity of your sacrifice. So um, you could call that the forces of death at work in the world, right? That's pretty heavy stuff. And the place where these sacrifices were said to have been done was the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. Um, here it is. In the modern day. So those buildings weren't all you know, there back in, back in the uh, first century. Um, but you can see sort of part of old Jerusalem there and then down into the valley, uh, the valley of Hanom, Gehenna. Um, interesting to think of that when you read the word hell, when Jesus uses it, that he's talking about that valley there. Yeah? Okay, so that's interesting just to start off with. Over time, again, it became a place of tombs or it became a place where um, they think that um, dead bodies were cast. And you can see how they kind of, if there's a bit of violence going on in the city, something like that, just sort of tossing the old bodies off the edge there down into the valley was a pretty handy thing. <laughs> um, everyone enjoying the pleasant imagery? <laughs> um, and... And then it became kind of a, uh, sort of the legend that the, in, amongst rabbis was that it had become uh, some kind of burning trash heap, right, as well. So there were dead bodies that were put there and there's also a rubbish that was burnt. And so smoke would rise from this valley all the time because there was always rubbish and bodies and all sorts of stuff being burnt there. Sounds like a great place to hang out. Um, now, some first century rabbis used the word Gehenna to talk about where people would get sent if they were wicked after they died. Some rabbis did do that. Um, but Jesus appears to use the word Gehenna much more in line with the prophet Jeremiah, who also uses the word Gehenna. So remember Jeremiah back in the Old Testament there, a long, very sad book? Um, he has a tough time, man. Uh, and what Jeremiah is talking about is the fact that uh, he keeps saying to, to this nation, he said, um, because they were participating at the time in these child sacrifices out in the Valley of Hinnom. And so Jeremiah starts to say things like, if you don't stop participating in this kind of activity and, and burning children and, and, and all of this kind of stuff in this valley, then you will become, your, your um, destiny will be that you will be burned like the Valley of Hinnom. So that's what Jeremiah starts to prophesy. Basically he says, all of Jerusalem is going to become like that valley because you are participating in all sorts of things that are ultimately going to lead to your own destruction. Yeah? That makes sense? And inevitably, in the end, that's what happens. Jerusalem is burned and destroyed not long after the prophet Jeremiah says those words, right? Uh, and so it's, it becomes used in the tradition of Jeremiah as this 
a reference to if you continue down your, your self-destructive path, there are going to be consequences uh, in your life. And the forces of death, if you like to use that kind of Hades language, are going to unfold in your life and it's, and it's not going to end up going good for it for anyone. Yeah? Um, I've got, I can give you afterwards, I can, I've got a, a number of the passages from Jeremiah where Jeremiah uses it. And then the argument is that the way in which Jesus is using it, he doesn't, he's not necessarily specifically saying as Jeremiah said, but the way in which he uses Gehenna is very much more in line with the way, with the Jeremiah tradition, which was, there were two main traditions of, amongst Jewish people in the first century about how to use Gehenna. There were some rabbis who used it as the place you go when, when you die for a period of time, no more than one year. Um, usually most of the major rabbi schools said you, you can't go to Gehenna for more than one year after you, after you die because that's too long. Um, and then Jesus, who uh, seemed to follow more of the line, there was a Jeremiah school of interpretation of Gehenna, which is it becomes used as the symbol for what happens when uh, you continue down the path of self-destruction. Now he uses the word Gehenna, absolutely. So there's, I think, two occasions where he uses Hades and every other instance that'll be translated as hell in the Gospels is Gehenna. Yeah, nearly every instance. Which we kind of miss, don't we? <laughs> when it's just translated as hell and then the church tradition at, at, at some point, Dante was a big part of this in the 11th century, wrote a whole thing about hell. And then we read back and every time we see that word, we think of all this other stuff that might not have been what people like Jesus were actually trying to say. Um, ironically, who is it that wants people burned in Gehenna? Molech. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's suggested that a lot of what Jesus is doing here, uh, a lot of the time is saying, if you do not change the course of action that you are on, you are going to find that you're going to face the same kind of consequences that Israel faced after Jeremiah. And not long after Jesus, Jerusalem is destroyed and burned. Um, and so a lot of this language is, being, is it's relevant to the people right there at that time, in that moment. Jesus is speaking to them about their lives and the consequences of the kind of actions that they're pursuing people who are wanting to pursue ways of violence, saying that this is what God wants, for example, which is what some of the Jewish followers are doing. They say what God wants us to do is rise up in a violent revolution against the Romans. Uh, and Jesus keeps saying, you need to follow a different path. And if you don't, you're going to end up in Gehenna, right? Which is very much like the language of Jeremiah. And ultimately, that's what they bring upon themselves because they continue to foster violent unrest in Jerusalem. And in the end, the response of Rome is to completely crush Jerusalem, destroy it and scatter the Jewish people. All right. So it's the symbol of like what happens when we engage in destructive human behaviour. Um, and... And Jesus also uses it in, in this kind of way to talk about, again, almost like this kingdom kind of language. So at one point, for example, he says, um, 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of Gehenna as you are. <laughs> he got pretty fired up, eh? Oh, man. No wonder he, uh, yeah, things didn't work out, so. Positive. <laughs> um, but what's he saying here? He's not saying, you're a, you're a child who's going to go there when you die and you're making them go there when they die too. He's saying, no, you are, you are someone who because of your manipulative and oppressive practices are participating in a way that's symbolised by something like the Valley of Hinnom by Gehenna rather than uh, by the Kingdom of God and the Kingdom of Heaven and the way of, uh, the way of God that we are supposed to participate in. Yeah? So are you participants in the coming kingdom of heaven, of God? Or are you participating in the dehumanising and destructive behaviour of Gehenna? How will you live? That's, that's the question that Jesus keeps posing over and over again. Uh, James picks up on this. James also uses the word Gehenna. So he says, uh, the tongue is also, also as a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. Um, it corrupts the whole body. He's talking here about the way we talk, yeah? And so when we gossip and slander and do all sorts of things, we can actually create all sorts of evil in the world. And itself is set on fire by Gehenna. Um, so that somehow everything that's symbolised in that whole valley of Hanom symbol can be found kind of coming out of your mouth when you speak uh, horrible words about another. So, there are the two words Jesus uses. Hades and Gehenna. Those are the words translated as hell in your Bible. Cool? <laughs> Hot, yeah. Uh, so, let's ask this question then. Um, if, if Jesus says uh, the gates of Hades will not prevail uh, against the church. What does that mean for us here and now? What's the word to us in Jesus' statement here? I'd love for you to discuss that question uh, with the people that are around you for a couple of moments. So before we have a break, just to, you know, wallow in the imagery, um, is there anything anyone would like to... Uh, Offer us from what's come up in your conversations and in your group and stuff like that. Your chats, chat skis. Yeah, Dietrich. Yeah, oh, Kilda. Kilda. Um, yeah, we were just having a, a, a mean corridor around um, about different states of, you know, we're <laughs> circling <laughs> the passage quite a bit, <laughs> coming at it from different angles. Like one idea was around... Uh, it being uh, uh, the idea of it prevailing against the church or not prevailing was it was more of a notion of a sense of hopefulness that that that, that sort of undergirds it all is that at, in the end things will be right and things will be good. Um, that was my interpretation of what you said, Greg. Um, <laughs> um, and then. Um, <laughs> uh, and then we're we're also talking about it in, in a in a way of like a state of being, you know, in reference to what you're talking about, like Sheol being a physical place, Hades being a 
way of um, being or, or consciousness, maybe. Um, yeah, and then, I don't know, I kind of was like, this is all good, but I just couldn't get past revelations <laughs> and how flippin' provocative and, um, you know, like, ugh. <laughs> uh, but then, yeah, we just sort of looked at that as well. And, um, yeah, uh, again, it was sort of a... a Oh, there was so much to take in. I feel like I'm going to butcher everything that was being talked about, said. But, um, yeah, uh, essentially, if I were to boil or distill that, it was around the idea that uh, Revelation um, shouldn't be a book that one looks at literally because, obviously, there's so much imagery and metaphor to it um, and that, actually, uh, it's it's more... it's talking about a, uh, an era of church that possibly doesn't exist anymore because possibly it's already been destroyed or it's seen. I don't know if anyone wants to speak to that with a bit more. Uh... Yeah, hey, <laughs> jump in, jump in. <laughs> Thanks, Dietrich. Yeah, I think. Um... <laughs> and so, uh, so we'll leave you with that. Yeah, no. <laughs> Uh, there's a there's a couple of things I suppose. One is um, that although what I've done is say this is where the word hell is used, it's not to say um, this is all of the ways in which the Bible talks about what happens and eternal consequences and stuff. And so there is some language in, in various places that that can be read that way. So we're going to touch on a couple of those uh, in the second part. Um, yes, good. Okay, back here. Um, I think um, Hades is, um, the gates of Hades is uh, your mouth and your mind and your heart. So it is that state of consciousness, like James was saying, the tongue has the power of life and death. And um, maybe we've, we've made it to be something outside of ourselves that we can be not responsible for or what we try to be but because um, we don't want to go there but actually it's much closer just like the Holy Spirit is close to us um, that we make choices and we either open the gate to a thought or um, to saying something or not saying something and um, and that's a very powerful idea, if you think about it. Um, and um, I had another a thought on it as well. And I can't... It's, it's, I'm, I'm having a senior moment. <laughs> um, it, it, yeah, that, that's what it was. It was... Um, uh, Hades... It, um, the idea of evil um, prevailing against the church... Brings up the idea of um, we are in a battle, and um, and I think that's biblical. I think I can say that, and um, we are prevailed upon constantly, and um, we have to know our authority and who we are in Christ, and that we 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 do that with the way we think and the way we speak, and the way we try to be. Um, and I think also 
things like praying and things like that. It's a very powerful way of countering um, the whole concept and experience of, of Hades, I suppose, that tries to prevail in this world. And I think as Christians we have to be careful not to be complacent um, maybe because of our culture and our society, um, we don't come up against some of the evil that may be in other people's lives and other parts of the world, maybe other parts of our country. Um, we we need to, you know, be on the offensive and have and and know our authority and um, be very aware and vigilant. I think with ourselves and. Um, and our families and the people who are close to us. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, I just find it really interesting. So uh, thinking about, you are talking about Hades before, and I can't remember that beautiful little, the shadowy, the shadowy abode of the dead, uh, which in a sense is, is quite an individual thing. Uh, this idea of the grave, you know, uh, if I talk about the grave, I'm not talking about us. Uh, uh, I, I sort of see Hades as a bit of an individual thing, uh, yet uh, it won't prev prevail against the church, which is a very corporate thing. So I suppose the way I'm thinking is uh, our life is uh, filled with, uh, at times, dwelling in the shadowy abode of the dead, uh, whether it be through uh, suffering and pain and struggles and our own darkness, yeah, maybe it, it won't prevail uh, against this community, uh, against this sense of that that uh, as we connect uh, together and as we find uh, a God in the midst of us, uh, that... Uh, that shadowy abode of the dead cannot prevail in our lives. Cool. Thank you. Some interesting reflections coming out. That's good. Andrew. Uh, I was always a bit confused by this earlier because I thought, how can the gates of, of Hades prevail against something? Like I imagine the gates somehow moving forward and trying to overtake something, but... Looking at it now, I realise, oh, it's the, the gates have to stand and prevail against something that's attacking it, you know. <clears throat> so gates are there in, as a defensive position. So it's saying that we as the church are going to, yeah, knock over, the, knock over the, the gates of Hades. And to me, how it corresponds to us here and now, is that uh, we have the hope that, that, that love is going to overcome violence. And that it's, yeah... <clears throat> It almost seems violent to push over the gates, you know, but, but that we're overcoming the violence, so it's a little bit uh, ironic that, yeah, we're, we're violently knocking over the gates with love, you know. <laughs> yeah, so the imagery that, um, that Revelation, for example, uses to describe that is that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testament. So, so the, the violence, if you like, of the church is um, self-giving, sacrificial, giving up our power and pursuing a way of love instead and that that ultimately overcomes the forces of death and gates of Hades and all that kind of stuff. So 
Yeah, I think I think so. And um, and so we have this sense. I mean, pe- people experience life now that looks very much like some kind of hell, right? Um, sometimes that's internal for us. Sometimes that's the battle we're fighting, if you like, uh, in ourselves. Um, and then sometimes it's looking around at the world in which we live and seeing that people, sometimes through the actions of others, often through the actions of others, it's outside of their own control, um, have found themselves entrapped or under the forces of death and violence in the world. And the church, as the community that recognises that we all face that battle within, but somehow desires to pursue a way of love in the world, uh, that we are the kind of people who want to see the kingdom of heaven unfold for people who are currently stuck in a living hell. Yeah? That's a good place to have a pause. And then we're going to come back with a, with a couple more thoughts. We might talk about sheep and goats and eternal punishment and a lake of fire. That sounds, and, then we'll, and then we'll have curry. Yes. All right. No goat curry? No. All right. So um, have, we'll have a, well, just a couple of minutes to, to grab a, a drink, a uh, cup of tea, uh, have a bit of a stretch, and then we'll come back shortly. Thank you. All right. So what I've, what I've tried to do so far is say that, um, hopefully this is what I've done. Although there is language in the Bible and in the Christian tradition that talks about and, and thinks about what might happen when we die, that's not what the word hell is doing in the Bible. Um, right? Hmm? <laughs> there is language that talks about what happens when we die. In the scripture and, thank you, very appropriate response. And uh, are you going to have a lie down, D? Oh, good man. Get cosy. So there is language about that in scripture and in the Christian tradition, but that's not um, what hell, the word hell in particular that we have in our text is talking about. Hell is talking about what we just discussed before, the forces of death and violence that are at work in us and in the world. Uh, a kind of kingdom way of being that is not the kind of kingdom that Jesus uh, invites us to participate in, but instead to uh, to participate in the coming kingdom of heaven. Yeah? Okay. So then what about this other language then? What have Christians said about this whole situation? Whenever we are talking about heaven and hell, and the, if we, oh, even, even using that sentence is slightly problematic, right? Let me rephrase. <laughs> Whenever we are talking about future post, um, what we often call post-mortem, right? Post-death realities. Um, we're always having a bit of a crack. Given it a bit of a go. Even I think at times, when you read the Apostle Paul, for example, in the New Testament, uh, even when he's talking about like what happens to believers, sometimes he's like, in a flash, and twinkling of an eye. And then another time he's like, oh, everybody will be asleep for ages and um, he's actually a little bit all over the place on this issue right because I think that the, the idea and I think someone mentioned it is the idea is hope right that's the, the big idea is hope that God is somehow taking this somewhere good that's the big idea that's coming through all of these different um, passages 
Um, now, one of the reasons that there is language, so Dietrich said, for example, some of the language in Revelation made him uncomfortable. Um, and there is some language that is used at times in the New Testament text that do seem to point forward to some kind of judgment or what happens when we face God at the end of this whole situation. Um, and one of the reasons for that, I guess, is that there is this suggestion that if God is going to put all things right in the world, there's going to be this movement of renewal and putting the pieces back together again and moving forward in some kind of, into some kind of beautiful new heavens and new earth. Well, then what happens if people don't want to participate in that? They want to keep being violent and pursuing the way of death in the world. Right? What, if, what happens if people want to, don't, don't want to be a part of the good times? They want to hang out with Renee and that, oh no. no. <laughs> I was going to say, because you, because you said earlier that heaven sounded um, really boring. So I was like, uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot that part. <laughs> um, so, so what do we do with this idea that somehow, so, um, because the, you know, this, this notion that we are given this choice of how we respond to God's invitation of here's, here's, here's a way of being in the world that has to do with human flourishing and goodness and renewal and love and, um, and all of that kind of thing. Uh, and so there is language that kind of talks about this coming to a point and coming to a head and what do we do with that. And Christians have done three things, three options with this, right? So this is what Christians have generally said. Um, and some of you may have... We, we talked about this years ago at Edge, I think, but um, may have seen these three before. But there are some Christians, and in particular in the Western tradition, this has been the dominant one really probably since Augustine, which is late 4th, early 5th century, um, and certainly since Dante, and then Calvin was all about this too, and he loved a bit of the old internal torment. Um this notion that for those people who are somehow unrepentant, uh, they will they will be they will experience some kind of eternal tormented reality where they suffer forever. Um, my suggestion to you is that um, that's that particular view is based on a bad reading of the word hell for starters. Um, it's based on a reading of Dante and Augustine rather than necessarily what, what the New Testament is trying to unfold for us. And it's more consistent with Moloch than it is with Jesus. This, so there we go. You, you, yeah, anyway. Uh, I'm just telling you what I think. Yeah. Um, the second option that, that, that Christians have held to is this idea that maybe eternal life is a gift that's given. And so... Uh, people, if they choose to follow the way of Jesus, get given the gift of eternal life. And if they don't, then they do not get given the gift of eternal life. So it's sometimes called conditional immortality. In other words, you're not inherently immortal and will live forever, but that's a gift that's given to you if you, um, if you find yourself going the Jesus way. Yeah? Sometimes less positively called annihilation, um, which is that everybody who doesn't, you know, buy into the program gets um, 
the fire in that sense is used as a symbol of kind of burning up rather than eternal uh, experience, right? And then there are those who are more universalist, which is that somehow God finds a way to reconcile and redeem all people in the end. And maybe in that sense, the image of fire is about uh, refining and purification or something like that, right? So um, those are the kind of... So before I say too much more about those, I'd love for you to have a little chat again with the people next to you. Dietrich, you can talk to your fellow pillows. Um, <laughs> what's your response to those three things? What do you? What's your instinctive kind of reaction to them? I kind of bagged the first one already, but that's just because I think it's um, horrendous. Um, that's my view, not yours. Uh, what's your What's your reaction and response to those three different ways of looking at this idea? Cool. Have a chat about that. We could probably talk about that for some time, I reckon. I think one of the reasons this conversation matters is it gets to the heart of what God is like, right? And there are, if we hold certain ideas about God, um, they shape the way we act in the world. So who was it, um, Catherine the Great, who said, if God is going to burn people in hell, then we may as well, paraphrasing, we may as well get things started and start burning them here and now, right? And she did. <laughs> um, and actually, the logic is not bad. <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> just any quick um, reflections on that question before Katerina? In the name of my namesake, in the name of my namesake, sort of flipping it on its head. Um, over in this corner, we find it very hard to get our heads around the concepts tonight. But nevertheless, we ended up with universalism. And we asked ourselves, well, if everything is so peachy and we're all happy families after we die anyway, why do we bother? Why do we bother? Yeah. What's the point? All right. Interesting question. You're getting pointed. You're getting called out. <laughs> oh, do you? <laughs> Would you like to share something? Oh no, I don't. <laughs> I like the oh no, and then you start the sentence. I don't need the mic. Okay. I'd only say this: um, our problem is we can't reconcile the evil that people do in this life. We can't reconcile it with the afterlife. So we need something so that we can find justice in ourselves and have a just God, all right? But the thing I love about, the thing I don't like about eternal conscious torment is the crime, uh, the penalty doesn't fit the crime, especially for the nice little old lady next door who never comes to edge. Uh, the second one I have a problem with because I, I have an indigeneity and I have a deep connection to the idea that there is a cloud of witnesses and there's something immortal about the human soul. It's hence being made in God's image. And the reason universalism appeals to me and why it makes sense now, if we, everybody gets in, why don't we just live like crap? Why don't we sleep around, get drunk and do everything we really think we want to do? Because then you'll be stuck in a state of Hades. Hades. So, so the issue is the, the reason universalism works for me and what's the point is because that's the point. 
living this way is the way of Jesus, and it is still the best way to live when you weigh up all the odds. That's why the prodigal son stories in the scriptures, because it says, well, if you really want your inheritance now, and you want to go bore around, there you go. You've still got that right, but we'll always end up back home with the heart of the Father, which is the true way to live in Fano and community. So, um, hopeful universalism is beautiful too, because it says that there's still a fire, there's still a purging, there's still a cleansing, there's still a sense that the deepest darkness in the human condition that we dislike and need justice over will still face the judgment of the fire and be purged. Sorry. So, um, Paul, for example, says that our lives will in some way be will pass through, be tested by the fire, or will pass through the fire, and what we've done that essentially belongs to the kingdom of heaven um, will remain and will last. Um, and so there is this idea that somehow, um, for all of us in our own way, there is this... Um, holding up our lives and actually looking at who we are and what's, what we participate in and having to face that. And I think one of the weird things about Christianity, because um, Christians love to talk about personal responsibility, but so much of um, traditional Christian theology has been about avoiding personal responsibility. It's the devil's fault, uh, or let's put it on Jesus. He'll take it. He'll take a hit for the team. Um, or, you know, it's those people out there that will go there one day. Um, and I, th- I actually think what the story of... Um, Jesus compels us to do is to actually take responsibility for for our lives and our actions in the world and say, what kind of person am I becoming uh, in the world? Well, how do I treat others? Am I participating now in the way of love and the way of Christ? Um, or am I participating in something else, the way of Hades, we might say? Yeah? You can. I'm deeply uncomfortable with the term universalism. Yet, I absolutely am a universalist. Uh, <laughs> well, no, but what I mean by that, uh, I suppose my understanding historically for myself of universalism is that uh, all religions are equal and all religions will lead you to God. And, and I don't believe that. I, I am orthodox in my belief uh, that... Uh, that salvation is found through Jesus Christ. I'm orthodox in, uh, in my belief that there is uh, only one way to eternal life. I'm n- not so orthodox in the fact that I believe absolutely in post-mortem salvation, this idea that we will forever have the opportunity to turn to God and to come into his fold. So in that sense, I'm a universalist, but I am not a universalist in the sense that I don't think I don't think everything points towards God. I think some some stuff sucks and is wrong. Does that make sense? And well, well, is is it like yeah? <laughs> the um, Christian universalism would say that, yes, all are saved through the work of Christ. Um, Pluralism is the word for um, all roads lead to, all roads are equal to one another. 
um, which I am certainly open to the idea of truth and wisdom and light and God being found in all sorts of unexpected and, and interesting places and all sorts of religious systems in the world. Um, but I do happen to believe there's something unique about the Jesus story. Uh, that That's why I'm a Christian. Um, I just happen to believe that Jesus' saving work is big enough and wide enough to incorporate much more than maybe I was taught when I was young. Yeah. So I differentiate between universalism and pluralism in that sense. Yeah. Christian universalism, though, uh, is that so that, that, because I also believe passionately in free choice, mm-hmm. in a sense that, that, that I, I would say we have to choose God. We have to choose to follow Him. Uh, where if everyone is just brought into the fold, there's a little bit of force involved in that. There's a little, there's not a lot of choice involved in that. If suddenly one day mm-hmm. one says, you little buggers, over here, now, let's... So there are different... Um there are different forms of Christian universalism. Um, some that say, yes, God just basically just swallows the, everybody up into the same happy family. And others that suggest that some of that language about um, that idea of judgment or that idea of the fire being used as a symbol or a metaphor, not literally here, uh, is this idea that that we all have to go th- through that experience of choosing God, whether it's now or whether it's then um, C.S. Lewis, for example, was famous for his, well, fam- I don't know if he was famous for this. Um, actually, a lot of Christians probably don't know that he said this. That's why they still like him. Um, but he talked, essentially, his view of of, um, of hell was that it was locked from the inside, right? Um, that, 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 or let's not even use the word hell, but let's use an eternal destiny, uh, an eternal future outside of God is a future that is locked from the inside. In other words, you're not locked in by God, you're locked in by yourself. Um, so if you ever read, did anyone read the Narnia series? Ever? In the last battle, there's a little uh, a room full of Christians, I should have read the Narnia series. Uh, there is this stable right at the very end of the last book, which is supposedly small and dark, but when they go through the door, they go into the new Narnia, right? But there are this bunch of dwarves who go into the stable and they refuse to see the new Narnia and so they still sit there thinking that they're in a dark stable when they're not, they're actually in the new Narnia, which is another way of C.S. Lewis talking about his idea that perhaps if people are um, want to refuse to see the goodness of God, then it's still their right to do so and to not enter into it, but that the hope would be, uh, and one Peter talks about this idea that, that Christ descends in and and offers grace and salvation to all, and will continue to extend grace and salvation to all for as long as it might take for people to respond to God. That would be one way of, of, of approaching it, yeah. Lots of ideas in here, eh? Lots of things to think about. Luckily, we're just tidying it all up, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, getting our theology 100% correct, and sailing on our way. Um, let me mention a couple of um, verses. Is that all right? We can do that? We can mention some, uh, I keep asking you if it's all right, but it really is. Here's a, here's a beautiful one. Here's a cracker, just in Matthew 25 there. <laughs> um, the sheep and the goats, right? So the sheep, now in this case, they didn't pray the prayer. They, they fed the naked and, no, hang on, who did the, no, they fed the uh, hungry. That's who they fed. Clothed the naked and uh, visited the prisoner and, and so on. 
And in, in this passage, actually, they didn't even realise they were doing it for God. They were just kind of, they were just doing it because it was the right thing to do, right? Um, and they're the ones who actually go forward into this, you know, this life of God. And then there's this phrase that the others, the goats who didn't do those things, will go away to eternal punishment. Sounds, well, that sounds like eternal torment, doesn't it? Except that, um, there's a couple of things to notice about those two words, eternal punishment, in in the Greek. <laughs> uh, just um, just to be that guy. Uh, one is that the word eternal doesn't really mean eternal. Um, but again, a lot of our modern translations are done in light of a particular tradition that's interpreted in a certain kind of way. So the word actually comes from it. The word is um, ionios, all right, which comes from the word eon, which is for an age, if you like. And the word used for punishment here is, there's two words in the Greek that can be used for punishment. One is for essentially um, retributive punishment, and one is for restorative or rehabilitative punishment. And Matthew uses the one here for restorative, rehabilitative punishment rather than the other. So although on the surface you'd say, oh, that's obviously people suffering forever. Um, there's a pretty strong suggestion here that in, even in this particular passage, that's not what's being talked about. Um, yeah? Well, a lot of the translation we're doing isn't... Uh, translators are always making theological decisions because what you're doing when you're translating from one language into another is you're trying to find... Um, you're, make, you're having to make, the reason they keep being new versions of the Bible, for example, new translations, is that people are always making theological decisions when they translate. Um, so one of the things that happens in our modern Bibles is that we translate that language in the light of a tradition of Dante and Augustine who essentially set pretty firmly a particular theological tradition for the church. And so when the translators come to those texts, the assumption is that that's what that means. But modern scholarship now, which because of the research we're able to do a lot more now than they could back in the day uh, and go back and, and look at the way in which these words were used in the first century because now we've uncovered all sorts of other scripts and manuscripts and we can look at the usage of these words um, suggest to us now that, that some of these translations have not been particularly helpful. So David Bentley Hart, for example, has just done a new translation of the New Testament based on some of that latest work and so he translates some of this quite differently. Um, and I think it's very helpful. Some of these words he actually leaves as the original word just because there is no real good equivalent word. For example, in, in the Hebrew language, there is no word for forever um, or even eternity. Um, there are no words in, in the Hebrew language that translate to that in the English, um, and yet sometimes those have been theological decisions that translators have made. All right, so that just makes you think, well, then what am I going to do when I read the Bible, Right? Um, but that's, the, that's, I guess, again, uh, we, I've said this before, I know, but um, reading the Bible on your own is quite a modern thing. <laughs> um, people only started reading the Bible on their own once the printing press was, was developed. And, and, and at the time, that was a really liberating thing because the church was controlling interpretation of the text too much. But scriptures are supposed to be communal um, texts that we read and discuss and wrestle with together as followers of, of Jesus. And so um, the hope is that as we come together and we talk and we discuss, we find our way forward.
with some of this. And it's an ongoing process, which is why if we get obsessed with getting everything 100% correct all the time, then um, we get frustrated. All right. You okay? Yeah? Yes, D. Forever? So the so the word so um, the closest translation probably is enduring, uh, which is sometimes translated as everlasting. Um, but it's really about a quality of endured, enduring everlastingness, rather than a um, never-ending period of time going forward into the future. That's not to say that then the New Testament doesn't talk about that kind of idea, but it's just to get a sense of what some of the language is doing. All right, you okay? We're nearly there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I told you we'd just tidy yourselves up with this. Uh, yeah, so because this was a big test and all you people who said universalism was the answer, you were incorrect and you're all getting tossed into the lake of fire for your heresy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not true. Uh, the... Uh, <laughs> Um, look, I, I think I could actually honestly say that if God, if it turns out that God um, tortures people forever, if they don't turn to him, then I don't want to follow that kind of God. Anyway, um, so, because we don't just follow God because he's the winner, follow God because he's good. Yeah. Uh, Revelation. Finishes or right near the end, before uh, right around, it's it's using this big language of new heavens and new earth, and it's beautiful, and there's a city, and it's coming down from heaven, and God's dwelling will be with humans, and it's so um, lovely. And then there's also this kind of lake of fire passage where um, where people and all sorts of things, including Hades itself, get tossed into the lake of fire uh, right at the end there, and you're like, oh, it doesn't sound great, does it? Let's just do a couple of things about what might be going on with that before we finish. Is that all right? Yes. I keep asking you if it's all right, but I'm just going to, I'm assuming it is actually because that's why you're here. Yeah. Firstly, in in the Jewish tradition, uh, there is this famous story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, um, often used as the um, anti-gay slam verse of the conservative Christian, but it's actually. As Ezekiel says, the sin of Sodom was this, arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned for the poor and needy. Um, right, so Sodom and Gomorrah face this kind of judgment, and, and the way the story goes in the Old Testament is that there's this kind of fire and brimstone event. And it happens right by the Dead Sea, and the fire and brimstone in, in Jewish tradition becomes symbolised by kind of this flowing into the Dead Sea, or actually in some of it coming out of the Dead Sea, and so the Dead Sea in Jewish mythology becomes um, talked about as like a lake of fire, right? Um, and so there's this association with um, the judgment of God upon Sodom for the arrogance, unconcerned for the poor and needy. Again, similar to kind of sheep and goats language here actually in some way. Um, interestingly, um, Ezekiel and other prophets, everybody said, look, Sodom is destroyed. And, and it'll say things like this, and this is where the, the, you see the translation work is, isn't the best. 
and the smoke from the ruins rose to the heavens forever and ever. But obviously, forever and ever there is not necessarily the right word to use, especially because when a city's destroyed, it doesn't actually rise for, <laughs> forever. Right? It rises until the fire burns out. Um, that's an aside. Um, but then Ezekiel says, after this complete lake of fire association with Sodom and Gomorrah, even Sodom and Gomorrah will be redeemed. So Ezekiel talks about this fact that God is going to somehow, even for, even for these two cities that stood as the symbol of the worst that we can be to one another, even they can be redeemed in the end. Um, and so when we get to Revelation, there's this weird thing that happens where all of this happens and the lake of fire and Hades is thrown in there and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but then afterwards, the new heavens and the new earth and everyone seems to be hanging out with God and then there are all these people still hanging out outside the gates. And John says, the gates of the city will never be shut. Right? And it actually says, it talks about these people that are outside. And you're like, well, where did those people come from? I thought they were all destroyed or burnt or getting tormented forever. And so there's this idea that actually the kingdom of heaven in the future is still open, still open up to the redemptive work of God. God is still inviting and drawing and reconciling and at work extending love and grace to us. Is that cool? Okay. So here's a couple of things we can say for sure. Hell is a present reality for people. And the work of God in the world, the work of Jesus and the life of the Spirit among us is to somehow overcome to rescue people from that, to be rescued ourselves from it and to rescue others from it and to set about seeing the kingdom of heaven come to earth. And that the future is shaped by a God who is love, uh, a city whose gates will never be shut. A um, couple of verses for you to, to close. Oh, oh, I've, oh, I've missed my PowerPoint. Yeah, it's <laughs> true, eh? Every time. Yeah, I've got them in, in here. It keeps saying, go to the next slide, and I, and I miss it. Uh, right, I've said that. That's fantastic. Um, 1 Timothy 4, Paul says this, actually. Uh, For we labour and struggle to this end because we have hoped in a living God who is the saviour of all human beings, and then especially of those who have faith, which is this idea that, that for those of us who... Who are, who, have, who are participating in this coming kingdom now, there's this, yes, we are getting to already participate in this in some kind of way, but this God is in fact the saviour of all human beings. It's not bad, yeah. I'll, I'll take that. I'll take the ones I like. No. <laughs> uh, Colossians 1, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. That somehow what God is doing in Jesus is reconciling all things. Yeah? Um, and that's a beautiful image. I think one of the things we have to do as Christians is say, well, and I said right at the beginning, do we hold God to a lower standard than we hold each other? I have to ask the question, what is... What does Jesus tell me about what God is like? 
And I can't then hold some wildly different view about the future as if God suddenly changes personality once we all die, you know. God's like loving and gracious right now. Once you die, he turns into a maniacal tyrant. Um, I've got to assume that God continues to be loving and gracious and good and reconciling and forgiving. And that's what God is in the business of doing. And that's what we get to participate in now as we build relationships with one another and forgive and reconcile and, and we go through this hard work of trying to work out what it means to be humans creating God's image and participating in the kingdom of God. Cool? All right. Now there's obviously lots more we could say, um, but there always is. It's part of the fun. You never get to the end of the conversation. Um... But I might pray and then um, hand back to Renee. Is that what I'm doing? That's what I'm doing, eh? Yeah, before we have some curry. All right. God, we thank you that you are good, that you are love, that we can trust you, that you are not unsafe. You are not a tyrant. You are good and you invite us in to participate in your goodness. So may we open up to you. May we open up to your work of goodness and of love in our lives. For those of us who are facing our own internal hell, May we somehow find the love and grace of Jesus at work in us, overcoming the forces of death and Hades and bringing us life and liberation. For those we know who are walking through it right now, may somehow the grace of Christ reach into them and into their lives. May we be people who participate in the coming kingdom of heaven, who allow ourselves to be shaped by you and by a story and a spirit of love and reconciliation and compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Renee. Hey, thank you, Michael. Very good. I still have many questions. <laughs> we could talk about hell over dinner. Um, so I don't know about you, but I'm... How hot's the curry? N- not too hot, I don't think. It's um, There's yogurt there, which is not dairy-free, if you find it too hot. Um, oh, I'm so hungry. I'm ready for it. Uh, so, it's funny, you were talking about the sheep and the goat many times. I had an experience in Bali. I was just there, nasi goreng, ordered lamb, but it was not lamb. It was something else. I think it was goat tummy. So after that, I was vegetarian for the rest of my Bali trip. <laughs> just, you know, but this is totally vegetarian, so never mind. Um, just a reminder that these um, episodes are po- uh, recorded and are up on podcasts so one you can go and re-listen to it and unpack it further or spend more time Um, and two if you 
are on the mic and don't want to be on the recording, just let Michael know and we can remove that. Um, also, do not forget, just another reminder for the meeting, the family meeting on the 25th next Wednesday. Make sure you come along to that. It's an important night, I think, for everyone. Um, tonight, dinner, just pay a little koha. I think we'll have the FPOS machine or cash little box out the back. And uh, speaking of koha, with Fort Edge, you can, um, if you've called this home, this place home, you can contribute in many different ways, financially um, and or other ways, like coming along early and helping set up or... Um, cooking or whatever, contributing in a way that helps you to feel part of this community is um, a really helpful way to feel connected um, and help. So I think that's it. Um, I've asked Esther to do a little karakia for us for the dinner tonight. So if you want to come up and do that. Yes, in She's got a book. Etu uh, Tato, everyone stand. Ete atua whakapainga e nei kai, hei oranga mō o mātou tinana, whangaia hoki o mātou wairua ki te taro o te ora, ko ihu karaiti tō mātou kai whakaora, āmine. Um, and the translation is just, Lord God, bless this food for this goodness of our bodies, feeding our spiritual needs also with the bread of life. Jesus Christ our Lord, forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>